If you would please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, I'm going to pick up a verse where we ended last week and continue on through the end end of the chapter. So to pick up the text at verse 9, it's the conclusion conclusion of the um, qualifications for an elder or a pastor. And let's begin at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Amen. So we have the problem of false teachers, which was addressed several different times in the book of First Timothy when we were going through that. <clears throat> and here it is, uh, Paul having to talk to Titus about this particular issue and problem as well. And we have uh, these these false teachers, I'm going to take us through their character, their doctrine, their motivation, and the results that we see in them. And their character you see in uh, verse 10, the first part of it, there are many who are insubordinate, other translations, rebellious, empty talkers, and deceivers. They are not those who are willing to continue in sound doctrine. They rebel against the authority of God and his truth. And uh, so they're described there as insubordinate or rebellious. They're empty talkers. They say a lot. They have a lot of words, but their words have no content to it, or at least they don't have any biblical content to it. And so it's vain and empty words and things we should not pay attention to. And they're deceivers. Uh, They're deliberately lying to the people and deceiving them uh, about what is the truth. Now, the Cretans would have been particularly susceptible to this. Um, You would think they would be alert to liars, but we have the description of them there in verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds his comment, this testimony is true. So what a, what a description of the character of, of these people. <clears throat> and 
Paul is quoting from a 6th century B.C. poet of the Cretans by the name of Epimenides. And I'm kind of getting distracted here a little bit, but my mind goes to what was going on at that time. Um, is, is really an issue. Depending on where he was in the 500s, in the 6th century B.C., depending on exactly when, that was the century when Israel was exiled, Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, he made this quotation during the time, probably, of the ministry of Daniel and of Ezekiel. Uh, if it's later on in the century, he would have been around when uh, Ezra and uh, possibly Nehemiah were beginning their work and rebuilding. It's just kind of an interesting time period when this quotation comes from, and yet it was known to Paul, and he affirms that it's true <clears throat> that the Cretans themselves are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And so they would have been susceptible to the deceitfulness of these false teachers. They, uh, in their description, they're self-centered, they're sensual, they're given to uh, uh, their own interests. And it's so they would have been uh, wanting to hear something new, something novel, uh, something unusual. And so they would have been willing to give in to all sorts of teaching. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, there's, it's never enough. There's always something more desired or something more wanted. And that seems to be the case with the Cretans. They're wanting the latest things. If you look back at Acts 17, when Paul is at the Areopagus in Athens, the place where the philosophers gather, they gather together to hear the latest thing. They wanted the newest bit of gossip that's around. And this seems to be the um, situation with the Cretans. And so when, we're, when these men are described as rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers, they're, they particularly fit uh, what the Cretans would be wanting. In Second uh, Timothy 4, Paul talks about Timothy to preach the word. And he says, For men will not always endure sound doctrine because they will heap for themselves uh, teachers who will teach them what their itching ears want to hear. <clears throat> and you know, our day is really not so different from the Cretans. Self-centered, sensual, Desiring the latest thing and uh, and they, they, they follow after uh, the latest thing. What's new and novel and unusual. If we continue down the text a little bit more described about these, um, <clears throat> the first part of 15 is to verse 15 is to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled. And the unbelieving, that's the false teachers, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. <clears throat> so these false teachers are 
are defiled and corrupt in verse 16 as well. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. A very terrible description of their character. And they, some of them would have come from within the church. Uh, False teachers who had claimed to know the Lord, but their lives and their teaching are corrupt. And some of the specific areas of doctrine that Paul cites, the last part of verse 10, he says, especially those of the circumcision party. The Judaizers were continuing to be a plague on the church. And the Judaizers were those who uh, affirmed that, you know, it's not justification by faith alone in Christ alone, but you need to become a Jew first. You need obedience to the law and then perhaps uh, trust in Christ. And Paul wrote a whole letter on that in the the letter of Galatians. But that's who he's referring to when he's talking about the circumcision party, the Judaizers who are loading on people the works of the law and not just faith in Christ. And it was a false doctrine that was definitely a plague on the church then and in various forms ever since. Because there's always the appeal and the allure of gaining favor by our own works and obedience instead of resting in Christ alone. The other description of their doctrine is in verse 14. They devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And uh, we saw that in 1 Timothy, this, the, 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 the mythology of, uh, of the Jewish um, religion we're not talking about what's in the Bible. We're talking about what's added to the scripture that they follow after. And Paul had to warn Timothy, don't get caught up in those things. He's warning us, don't get caught up in things outside of scripture that are fanciful and draw our attention away. And they rejected the commands of, uh, or, or, or the, the, they, they turn away from the truth. Uh, they uh, perhaps had an awareness of the truth, but they part of their rebellion is that they turn away from the truth. So we have the character and we have the doctrine of these false teachers and their motivation at the last part of verse 11. And for shameful gain, um, what they ought not to teach. So, so they're, they're teaching for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. <clears throat> and we see, we've seen that also throughout history. People who teach falsehood for their own gain. The prosperity preachers uh, sound like they're out for what's best for you, but they're really out for what's best for them. Uh, they want you to contribute to them so that they can have their planes and their large houses. And um, 
maybe I shouldn't lump them all in the same boat, but I'm going to say it anyway. They're, to me, these people are just absolutely detestable. I can't stand them. And the reason I can't stand them is they are, are a plague on widows' houses. Uh, they they plague, play on the people who are most unable to help them. And uh, I don't understand why they're not totally in fear and dread of Almighty God, but he will hold them to account. And these false teachers, they're teaching for their own gain, not for the gain of the people. And that doesn't mean, as Paul does teach, that those who minister um, cannot be supported. Paul was supported at different times. But it's, it can't be done for personal gain. It needs to be done to honor God first and uh, for the benefit of God's people. And the result, what disturbed Paul so much, uh, aside from just the, the, the basic departure from the truth, is in the middle of verse 11, after saying they must be silenced, they are upsetting whole families by their teaching. Uh, Instead of giving God's people instruction and direction and comfort and help, they're upsetting whole families. And there there may be kind of a little bit of a double meaning in that. Uh, Obviously, it would apply to individual families, but at that time, uh, largely the church all met in homes. And so as these households of faith are gathering together in homes to worship God, to fellowship around a, a table, to have the Lord's Supper, these false teachers are upsetting them. They're dividing them. They're disturbing them. They're giving unrest to the people of God as they gather for worship. And so the idea of upsetting families, we have to see not only specifically individual families, which would have certainly been true, but the family of faith that gathered together. These people were not building up the people of God. They were tearing them down and disturbing them and filling them with unrest. And so Paul is giving this description in these this warning of these false teachers and you and I need to pay attention to that we need to have our antenna up and not be drawn into falsehood uh, not be drawn into something that may sound good but does it have the backing of the word of God and you as a believer in Christ can test that the believers in in uh, Berea Tested Paul, what he had to say, against the word of God. And you can do that too. Uh, even if sometimes you need to sit, seek additional advice, you can test what is being spoken against the word of God. And you need to, so that, you'll not, so that you will not be taken in. So what are we to do, or what are, what's the instruction to Titus on how is he to deal with these false teachers? And a, a lot of what is said here perhaps specifically applies to those who are leaders because it grows out of that the qualifications for leaders in the church. But there, there are things you and I can take seriously and, and think through and apply 
in our own respective situations as needed. But there are four things that Titus and the elders can do toward to deal with the uh, false teachers. The first thing, which is back in verse 9, is they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. To be able to identify a counterfeit, uh, at least I've read that uh, those people that work for the government, the FBI, that are there to determine what is a counterfeit bill, the way they're trained in being able to discern a counterfeit bill is to spend all their time studying the real thing. And it gets so clear and permanent in their heads that all they have to do is glance at a counterfeit and they can see it. The same thing is true for you and me regarding biblical doctrine. You and I need to hold fast the trustworthy word as it's been taught. And this word is the, <clears throat> the teaching of the apostles that's been handed, handed down. <clears throat> Much of the New Testament hadn't been collected together. There were many of the books by this time, because we're looking at in the 60s uh, A.D., um, Most of the books of the Bible of the New Testament had been written by that time. Many of them had at least, but it hadn't all been collected together. There would have been, they would have been known, but the oral teaching of the apostles had been handed down and it was sure. And they had that and they were to hold fast to that uh, and get that firmly fixed in their minds. Uh, and you and I, that's, that's a way you and I can protect ourselves against uh, falsehood. Is that we get ourselves grounded in the truth, the trustworthy word that has been handed down to us. Now you and I have the completed scriptures. So we have it in front of us. And we need to make it our objective to get that firmly fixed in our minds so that, and you can use the helps of our confessions and catechisms as it teaches us the content of that, of the scriptures, and it kind of helps us <clears throat> lay those things out in an orderly way. And those things can be a real help to you uh, in grounding yourself in the truth so that you can identify the counterfeits when they come up. The second thing to do is it's still in verse nine. Uh, I'm going to come back to one other thing that the uh, leaders are to do with this trustworthy word, but regarding the false teachers, so that they can rebuke those who contradict it. So the first thing is to rebuke. It means to speak against uh, from a person in authority. He would be in a position where he could... um, Rebuke the person who is going astray. You might not feel always in that you're in the place to do that, but you can. The word uh, rebuke, translated rebuke, uh, means speak against. And you can equip yourself as you're able to be able to defend the truth and speak against the error and point out the different things. Again, you want to be humble in doing that. Uh, 
not arrogant and you want to um, not get yourself in a situation where, you know, you're in over your head with someone, but at least you can in your own mind speak against it and guard your own heart uh, to the falsehood. Uh, So the first thing that uh, the leaders were supposed to do is to rebuke those who contradict that sound doctrine. Um, And it's it's a a very important thing for the church to stand for the truth and correct those uh, who are teaching the wrong thing. Uh, The third thing, so the first thing is be grounded. The second thing, rebuke those who contradict the truth. The third thing you see in verse 11, they must be silenced. Now, that would mean at least for sure that you silence their arguments by valid argumentation against them. Silence their arguments, at least in your own mind, by again grounding yourself in the truth and seeking out answers for their falsehood. In the case of the leaders of the church, there are times when they have to actually tell the person they need to either quit teaching or leave. And they have the authority to do that, to guard the people of God, the church of God. So you can silence them by the argument or defense of the truth. Uh, There are times you can silence them, the leaders particularly, by forbidding them to speak. Uh, And the leaders of the church needed to do that. Being in a Presbyterian church, there are certain orders of things that protect you uh, and the church from someone coming up here and just saying whatever they want to say. Uh, Years ago, uh, Pastor Mark Wheat, he was a personal trainer in one of the gyms in town, and the uh, person who ran the gym or owned owned the gym was kind of a more of a charismatic kind of person, Uh, and uh, he came to Mark one day and said, I have a message that I need to take to every church in Tyler. And I don't think Mark said anything to him, but I know Mark told me what he was thinking at least. And what he was thinking was, well, that'll never happen at our church. Because if someone walks in the door and says, you know, God has spoken to me and I have a message for the church. My response, our elders response is going to be, Well, he didn't speak to us. And so, no, you're not going to get there. There's a a protocol. There's a step that one of the one of the callings of the elders is to guard the pulpit. And no one can enter the pulpit without the permission of the elders. So someone can't just come in. Uh, They are silenced and. The leadership of the church definitely has that right and responsibility to silence uh, false teachers. And then the fourth thing that they are to do is, uh, you see in verse 13, um, therefore, after Paul saying the testimony of the Cretans is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. And you're... um, here, there, there's a little bit of more, even more forcefulness to the rebuke here. 
uh, it's you're just to speak to them and um, in a sense contradict them in um, with with some passion and with some forcefulness, rebuking them sharply. Last week we looked at a verse in Second Timothy where it talks about doing this with gentleness, and that that has its place and humility. But at some point, there may need to be some force. It's not to be vicious, but it's to have a forceful stand for the truth. And again, particularly for the leaders of the church. But the rebuke, even a sharp rebuke, is not to humiliate the person. It's to win the person. This is the purpose of all church discipline uh, because as he Paul says toward the end of that verse rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith uh, it's it's to reclaim them perhaps that it has this, another uh, aspect of it the rebuke before, with the people of God in view too rebuking the people from listening to the false teachers is so that they may be sound in the faith, that they may be one for the Lord. Calvin has an interesting series of comments related to this. He says, Here is the supreme power with which pastors of the church, by whatever name they are called, should be invested, namely to dare all boldly for the word of God, counseling all virtue, glory, wisdom, and rank of the, of the world, to yield to obey its majesty, to command all from the highest to the lowest, trusting to its power to build up the house of Christ and overthrow the house of Satan, to feed the sheep and chase away the wolves, to instruct and exhort the docile, to accuse, rebuke, and subdue the rebellious and the petulant, to bind and loose. In time, if need be, to file and fulminate, but all, but all in the word of God. And so there's this strong exhortation to the leadership in particular, but you can be guarding, guarding yourself against this to, um, to re- rebuke, to silence, and to rebuke sharply uh, those who are teaching false doctrine. And just in kind of a final kind of drawing several different things together, why is it that the leaders, in a sense, why do you have to be on your guard against this false teaching? There are three things, particularly the role of the elders. If we come back to verse 9, the first thing is they hold to the trustworthy word so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Uh, you want to be grounded in truth so that you can share that with other people, your Christian friends, others who may be struggling in their faith. You can be a real testimony to them or a help to them, pointing them to the truth of God's word. The leaders of the church particularly are called on to teach God's word to the people, to, to build them up in their faith. That's our goal uh, it's our desire to um, instruct in sound doctrine so that the people of God will be guarded against falling away. 
Uh, a, a second purpose would be to protect families. These false teachers are uh, disturbing the families. They're upsetting whole families by their teaching. It's our calling uh, to protect them, to build them up, to give them peace, to give them guidance so that they may be strengthened and not upset them, not disturb them, not divide them, not to give them unrest, but to give them peace and rest in the truth. And that's part of our calling. We need to protect families, protect believers in the Lord. And then that's not only protecting individual families, protecting the family of faith that's gathered here. And then to promote purity. At the beginning of the chapter, it talks about that Paul was a, an apostle uh, for the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. It was Paul's goal and purpose as an apostle, apostle to encourage godliness. So there, there you see in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. So Paul is wanting us to encourage purity in God's people. If we know the truth and we're grounded in the truth, then one of the fruits of the truth is to is godliness and purity. And that's something we want to promote and encourage. And we'll all strong, struggle at times. We may stumble and fall, but we're, we want to put them back on the path and encourage them and guide them with the truth so that purity might be a characteristic and quality of our lives. And so the encouragement for you and for me is that for us to hold fast to the truth and build one another up and defend the truth against uh, the errors that will come our way so that we might live in a way that's uh, godly and honoring to the Lord and faithful to his truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the warnings you give us for those who speak falsely. Uh, we ask, O oh Lord, for you to help us to be grounded in the truth, that we might be alert and ever vigilant to uh, not be lured away by the latest thing, but we might uh, hold fast to the faithful word that you've given to us. Bless our church, bless our leaders, help us to be faithful in uh, protecting your people and guiding them in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.